Thank you, John. Yeah, you can hear me this morning. Yeah. Well, hey, it's great to be back at South Valley Community Church. I've been in the Bay Area and Reno and Carson and Napa and San Francisco, but it's great to be amongst family and amongst friends in a cooling down Lamore. Yeah, we're glad for the fall. And uh, excited to have a slightly different kind of preach as I share a little uh, first. And then our good friend David Oginga from Haruma in Kenya will also come and share. And then uh, I'll finish it off. And at the end, you will have an opportunity to give to support what David leads in Faraha School and in Haruma. And uh, it, the church offering has been taken. So any money you've got left in your pocket, you weren't given to the church anyway. Okay? So uh, uh, let's get started. And we've been doing this series uh, about the kingdom of God. And uh, uh, I got some thoughts on that there. And uh, we're going to still preach that kingdom of God series. I'll be preaching it, not the next couple of weeks because I'm having to travel again. But uh, there's three good solid weeks in a row where we'll finish off that kingdom of God series. But... There is no greater way to talk about the kingdom of God and what God is about on earth than to have somebody like David Oginga with us this morning uh, because uh, God has a bias to the poor. It's all over Scripture. And we turn away from it and we don't look at it, but it's clearly there. And that's what we're going to look at a little bit this morning. So let's start. There is a story in the Bible uh, told by Jesus. It's in Luke's Gospel, chapter 16, uh, where a beggar named Lazarus is laid at the feet of a rich man. And if you were to read that story in Luke's Gospel, chapter 16, the Bible says that the beggar was covered with sores and he longed to eat from the rich man's table. And, 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 and it says in the text, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, two things to get us started this morning that I found helpful. Firstly, can anyone here come up with a name of any other character in any other parable that Jesus ever told? Anyone got the name of any other character out with Lazarus in any other parable that Jesus ever told? His real name. I'll give you a hundred dollars. If you can come up with the name of any other character in any other parable that Jesus ever told out with this story about Lazarus. Well, there is none. Like, you really think I'd give away $100, folks? Come on, I'm Scottish, okay? Uh, there's none. In all of the parables that Jesus ever told... Not a single person, the prodigal son, the elder brother, the father, the good Samaritan, the tax collector, the Pharisees, every character in every story that Jesus ever told is anonymous. Except for this story about Lazarus and the rich man. Why? It's kind of interesting. Like, if you go to any party... If an incredible, wealthy, successful guy shows up and there's an unemployed, shabby, poor guy showing up, which name do most people remember? The guy with a high status. 
But the one character in all the stories that Jesus ever told who gets a name is the homeless, diseased, penniless beggar called Lazarus. The word Lazarus, the name Lazarus, is a Hebrew name which means the one God helps. (laughs) Which is rather ironic, isn't it? Because it looks like he's not the one that God helps. The rich guy looks like the one that God helps. Lazarus, the beggar, he looks like the one God's forgotten. And every day, Lazarus lies at the gate of this rich man. And every day, the rich man feasts. And Lazarus sees the guests and hears the party and smells the food and he aches and he longs to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Now I know I don't need to connect the dots. Like I did last week in Reno, but (laughs) this is Lamar. Come on, we're educated people here, okay? We live in a world where 4.1 billion people, think about this, just 4.1 billion people live on $2 or less a day. 1.3 billion of that group live on less than $1.25 a day, which we define as extreme poverty. No? Let me say it. There's poverty in America. It's relative poverty. 43 million Americans who live on or below the American poverty line, which for a family of four is living with less than $25,100 a year, which is about $480 a week. If you have less than that, America classes you as poor. And whilst it's not extreme poverty, it is still real poverty for those who live in that hardship. Uh, We'll be excited in the coming weeks to talk a little bit about some of the redevelopment that's happening in our Thrift Renewed store and some of the things that are going to change there and how we're going to really try to put some more fuel into that ministry and reach more people who are in need. But, you know, it's a whole other economic discussion to talk about the $1.5 trillion in the U.S. budget that's there to provide for those who live below the poverty line. And that's a whole other seminar for a whole other day. But this morning, and what we're involved in, is what is termed extreme poverty. You think about your life if you had to live on five quarters a day. So let me give you a definition, extreme poverty. Any household who cannot meet basic needs for survival, sometimes defined as households living on less than $1.25 a day, which would not provide basic nutrition, clean water, shelter, sanitation, healthcare, education. And there are, in our world, 1.3 billion people who that is their daily reality. And some of us know some of the people who live in that circumstances. Here's some images of some of 
the people who we know who live in those conditions. called Haruma. And maybe you don't every day see their faces, but these are the amazing people that South Valley Community Church stands with day in, day out, through your partnership with When I Grow Up and with our global partners, David Oginga and his team from Faraha Community Schools. And uh, this is who you are empowering and seeking justice for. It's part of what this church does. Now stay with me. Uh, how did you come to church today? By a car. Only 8% of the world own a car. And not all of them own a really nice car. Just a car. If you earn Californian minimum wage, $12 an hour, you are in the top 5% of income earners on the planet. If you earn $16 an hour or more, you are in the top 1% income earners in our world. And every three and a half seconds, a child dies from poverty-related illness. And yet we could provide a meal for 25 cents. And every 30 seconds, someone dies from malaria. And yet we could cure that malaria for $2, if not less. Now come back to Lazarus. Lazarus is so sick and disabled and crippled that he couldn't move himself. And so it says in the text that this man was laid at the gate. That means he had some friends, and those friends would care for him, and, and, and every morning they would take him to the gate, and every morning they would think, maybe today, maybe today is the day that the guy with all the rich money will see him and will be moved in his heart and will do something to help Lazarus. And every night they would pick Lazarus up, and they'd take him someplace to sleep, and they would think, maybe tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow. And then the Bible says, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, why would Jesus put that in the Bible? Oh, in, in Israel, people were generally pretty unsentimental about dogs. I know we love them. But dogs in the day of Jesus were viewed as scavengers. They were regarded almost as unclean as pigs. No one who had a dog had it as a pet in the, in the ancient world. That was unheard of. But you know that dogs will lick you as a sign of affection. Well, and you also know that dogs, if they lick a wound in their saliva is what's known as indigenous peptide antibodies. And in that saliva, it can sometimes bring healing. 
And so in the ancient world, people noticed that when a dog licked someone, that person's wound tended to heal. And I'm not making up, certain dogs were actually trained to just go and lick open wounds and sores and you would pay a small fee for that dog to lick you. Now, I know this question will come up, so let's just deal with it. Why does Jesus mention dogs? Why doesn't Jesus mention cats in the story? And it's because Jesus did not like cats. It's just in the Bible. So some, some 13 years ago, myself and a few others in the valley, we didn't want to stand on the sidelines of what was happening in our world with regards to extreme poverty and particularly children who were the most vulnerable and many children who were HIV and AIDS orphans. And we wanted to do something about the injustice. And we had heard the stats of children dying every three and a half seconds. We'd also heard that one out of five children never get to school. 265 million children just because of where they were born. Like they didn't have a choice in that. And we learned that poverty was not a lack of money. Poverty was a lack of options. And the option of education, which would pull them out of poverty. So we went on a search to find some children who the world had forgotten. And we wanted to bring help that doesn't hurt. Because sometimes uh, we in the West go and we bring help that hurts. And we didn't want to do that. We wanted to bring help that didn't hurt. And that led us to Haruma Slum in Nairobi, Kenya, which I've told you before is about the size of Lamor, which has 26,000 people. And it's the same size as Lamor, but it's got 600,000 people. And uh, led us to a young man and some of his team, a man by the name of David Oginga, and an organization called Faraha Community Foundation who'd started the school. And, and my life and some other people's lives, even in this church, have never been the same since we entered Haruma slum and we met David. And we have then tried to work to help and empower children around David uh, that just because of where they live should not determine if they live. And this is a justice issue. And the gospel and Jesus has much to say about justice. And so David has given his talents and his gifts and his time and his life to help and to heal and to empower and to save thousands of people, hundreds of children who live daily in slums where life is fragile and living is very hard and getting out and pulling your family out with you is nearly impossible. But through what David is, about, is, it, is, it, is, is leading and empowering, we're seeing transformation happen to many children. Amen. So, I'm going to invite David in a few moments to come. Uh, but let's just watch a very short video that I think you might have seen last week as well. That talks a little bit about David and introduces him to us. My name is David Oginga, currently the Executive Director of Fura Community Foundation. Fura Community Foundation is a registered NGO in Kenya that runs education-based program that supports uh, students in our community uh, through primary school, secondary school, and currently through college and university. 
Uh, we are doing close to 700 students in both primary and secondary school. We also work closely with their families. We take in the child in our education system, but at the same time also offer support back to the families. One of the support that we're offering is a healthcare support. The other support is a microcredit support so that they can start their own businesses and be self-sustainable and take care of their kids as well. There's quite a remarkable support uh, and improvement that has gone directly back into the kids and you can see it in the community. The impact is, is beyond measure. South Valley Community Church, would you welcome to Lamore, California, David Odongo Ugenga. Wow. Good morning, church. What an amazing God we serve. Um, I'm really excited to be here. Last I was here was two years back. Um, it's always a great joy to just walk in here, fellowship with you, you know, get to hug friends and uh, make new friends. Uh, that's what Christ connects us with. So I'm excited. Uh, I bring lots of love, uh, lots of hugs from my family, my wife and kids, from the many children that you're supporting back in Uruma, the many families that you're impacting, and from the great team that works with me in Fura Community Foundation. It's been quite a journey. Uh, I also want to thank you all. You've been very faithful, very committed, uh, offered a lot of support. You've stood with us to offer nutrition, provide health care and education to quite a large number of people back in my community. It's so exciting to be here. Just by any case, you happen not to connect with my English and my accent, we'll blame it on the mic. I, <laughs> he has a different mic and I have a different one. <laughs> but I want to take this chance to be straight and say, uh, Christ connects us. And through his gospel and his faithfulness, together we've been able to offer hope into a community that I was raised in. The difficulties, the challenges that are part of the slum that I've been raised and I was part of are slowly by slowly becoming a story of the past. We've stood together through the gospel of Christ, making sure that we reach to the poorest of the poor in Uruma. And you guys have been committed, and through your love, we've seen the transformation. I was raised in Uruma. The story starts some years back. Uh, very early age of my upbringing, I was the firstborn in a family of five. Uh, there's a lot of pressure back in our country when you're a firstborn. There's a lot of standard and expectation that every family sets so that you can be, you know, set a good example to your siblings. I have three sisters and one brother. I was raised in a 10 by 10 size house. Um, this is something close to your bathroom or probably a walk-in closet. That used to be our sitting room, our bedroom, 
our kitchen, our lounge. Like that was our life. That, that was like everything in, our, in my upbringing. That's the same place you'll study, the same place you'll eat. Uh, you'll only get a privilege to probably have your own bed uh, when you leave, go out to high school or college. But at the early stage, you get the privilege of being the firstborn to sleep in, a, in the sofa. And as your siblings come by, you move from the sofa and you create space for your followers so that they get the opportunity to get a better comfortable place to sleep. And then you move and spread down and you start sleeping down. I was lucky to have both of my parents at my early stage of upbringing. They played a very critical role in shaping me up. My mom had a very kind art. She had a very, she was having an open door policy where kids used to walk in into her house and it was fun for kids and it was fun for everyone. You walk into a house, uh, as a child you will eventually not leave that house without something. So either a piece of fruit, uh, a sweet, uh, some tea for you to take, and kids kept coming in. Our setup of Houses, it's a flat building, uh, averagely 10 units per floor, like five-storied buildings, and then in each floor, there are five to 10 units. These units, uh, we have averagely five family members in a household. We share one bathroom and we share one toilet. So every day in the morning, you have to be fast enough for you to to prepare yourself and go to school. I went to the normal public school, one of the primary schools close to Ruma. Ruma set up close to 600,000 people live in this two-mile square place. We only have three public schools that averagely take in 2,000 pupils. Every class with an average ratio of one teacher to close to 100 students per class. Every day, go to school. The first two, three days, four days of my going to school, I was lucky my parents could see me off to school. But in the fourth day, towards the end of the week, the only thing you'll be told is, you know what, that's the direction of school. Let's, let's hear you went to school. And the only way they will confirm whether you went to school is if you come back home. That will be the only confirmation that you was able to go to school and he came back. I was lucky. I went through the process. I passed my exams. I went to, to the secondary level of education. I went to a day school. Uh, this was also quite a big challenge for me because I used to commute daily uh, using our public transport. They're called the minivans, the matatu, all the way to school. I did well. I passed my exams, got an opportunity to go to college. Uh, I was offered, among as many and uh, very few, an opportunity to join a medical school. And in my first year, that was the first time I was going to travel and uh, leave the slum and go to college. Now, going to college, I went six kilometers away from home, went to college. One exciting thing is I get an opportunity to have my bed in college. 
uh, you it's a confirmation that you've grown and you need to to take up responsibilities so i went to college in my first year my community came through they raised money i uh, made sure that i was able to raise my fee in my first year that's the spirit back at home like everyone just comes together to make sure that you don't miss out a chance I went to college first year fortunately i couldn't continue with my uh, my college in my second year because of an increment that was moved from um averagely $500 to $800 in my second year so i came back and uh, that difference was quite big for my family and unfortunately i was not able to continue so i'm coming back home a bit depressed back to the same setup that i hope that i was going to you know leave and probably make a difference somewhere else i'm at home depressed trying to ask myself what's next what really is cut out for me and as i said we really serve an amazing god he he offered me a chance and a moment to reflect and to know what my purpose was all about and i think through christ i was able to tap into an opportunity and into a calling that actually i didn't see myself being part of but all these started at an early stage when i used to see the compassion the love and the care that my mom used to extend to children so i'm coming back home kids keep coming back in the evening at my family place and here comes a chance of training and equipping these child, children with knowledge and guiding them through um, their books and the exams so i start a tutoring program at home in my family house this is way back almost 15 16 years back and in my first two years all i do is serve at home but at the same time i used to fellowship in a youth church and through church i used to do cleanups community awareness uh, advocacy for matters to do with health uh, organize environmental awareness event and as young guys just rally as we share the gospel of christ and at the same time just rally other young guys and show them that you know what you can make a difference in our community so there was church involvement there was home support that i received and all these connected me uh, in doing and making it easier for me to serve the children so i'm serving the children but in church there was a colleague of mine a friend a co-founder of our program was doing the same program and we shared in our fellowship and we said you know what let's make this thing a big thing let's expand the program let's reach out to many kids as many as we have by then i was only having 20 kids in our family and together we came together and our dream by then was just to set up a small resource center a simple unit have books let's ask the community to just donate uh, curriculum books story books and have these kids get a well lit place quite spacious as compared to their houses a place where they'll come home do their homework and prepare well for their national exams we are moving now from our family house and the biggest challenge we faced at that early stage was to raise 600 dollars now 600 dollars was supposed to be the rent and the running cost for a facility we pulled through together as friends we find a place uh, almost 
half of your pulpit and close to 50 students turned up on our first few weeks of operation every day in the evening, from four in the evening to eight in the evening, just after they leave school. And on Saturday, we kept the faith and kept offering music lessons, art lessons, you know, just trying to keep them busy and uh, sway them away from the vices and the challenges that they used to face back at home. Now, this kept happening, and slowly by slowly, we was stunned by opening ourselves up to the reality that as much as we are working with the kids, the families have so much that we need to direct our support to. And that's how uh, God guided us through and everyone starts saying, you know what, start a school. You guys have been doing so well with our students. Their grades are improving. They are becoming well in school as a result of the tutoring program. Why don't you think of starting a school? Another challenge. We stepped up our game and uh, started a preschool with three years old kids. So during the day, the room used to be empty and in the evening we were doing the tutoring. We started a school at that stage. This is early in the year 2006. And at that stage, we only had 20 pupils the whole year. Three-year-old kids. I give credit to all the preschool teachers, anyone working with young children, quite a big task at that early stage. We are kids coming, uh, they need to be guided through, school has picked. At this stage, our desire was only to run a preschool. We felt we were only cut out to continue doing our tutoring program, but at the same time just offer basic Uh, quality education, because we felt a big challenge for many children in our community. They were missing out at that early stage of growth, and our desire was to offer something that will, you know, just set them off for better opportunity whenever they go to other institutions. They have an edge over the others because their foundation was better. And to us, that was what we felt God was giving us as a challenge. We kept doing that But somewhere in 2007, uh, the global connection that God has paired us together with when I grew up. And during that time, we only had 120 kids in our program. And boom, all this scaled up to a level that I will honestly tell you, if it wasn't for the love and the merciful and the provision of Christ, I don't think I'll be in a position to stand before you and share the impact that to date what simply started as a home tutoring program has expanded to. We are doing close to, we are supporting and empowering close to 5,000 people in Uruma and over 700 children are part of our education program with close to 86 of them currently in college. So we've gone a full transformation from a home tutoring program to preschool, to primary school, to secondary school, which is a boarding secondary school. Quite a privilege for many students in my neighborhood. If you get a chance to go to secondary school and get an opportunity to go to boarding school, then you're privileged. 
at the same time, these students have gotten a chance to all progress to college and university, and to date, 86 of them. And soon, several of them are going to graduate this year. They represent a story of a school that posts 100% pass rate in a community of close to 160 public and private schools where we always position one and three consistently for the past seven years. The high school is 45 minutes away from our neighborhood with a desire of trying to just give them a different feel away from the slum, set them off wired differently, committed and focused in education. The high school has always, for the past four years, that they've done their national exams, Kenya system is quite intense when it comes to education. So there is national ranking, and every child is subjected to academic assessment. And every child as early as three years will be subjected to three exams on a timely basis. There is the first exams, the first exam just right after the report from school, uh, from home, from a long holiday, the first week, the first thing they come across is boom, a test. To just tell them and remind them that you know what, you're back to school. <laughs> so that's the first thing they come across. These exams is a continuous assessment. The grades determine the next level of his progress or a progress to class. The midterm exam, and then the end term exam. Now all these adds up to the national exam, which averagely from primary level, we have close to one million students sitting for the national exams, which is a transition test to secondary school. And unfortunately, because of the grading, only 600,000 of them will be regarded as qualified to progress to the next level. 400. Thousand of them are cut off the system. And the system makes them feel less important, less valuable, and not capable to progress with life because the academics are not good. The 600,000 that progress to secondary school face another challenge. The next challenge is they are also subjected to national exams, entry um, qualifying exams that allows them to progress to university and college. And out of 600, unfortunately, close to 300,000 of them don't qualify to go to college and university because of the grading system. The 300 that will get an opportunity, probably 150 or 200 of them will get to be admitted directly by the government system through a subsidized costing, and they still need to raise part of their fee their 100 and plus will miss that opportunity. It's quite unfortunate that the system keeps saving them as they progress up. We are running a high school that to date is ranked out of 460 schools in our county. We are top 30 in the district. Averagely posting 100% pass 
for all the students and transiting all of them to college and university. Our impact together, because this is all our story. You guys have been part of this progress for the past 10 years. Our impact together has touched on provision of food to many children, nutritious meal. We've together uh, stand with families that are afflicted, matters to do with health, and we've provided some hope and relief to this family. We've also provided business support to many families to try and just have an extra income that will supplement on whatever they make so that their kids can at least get an extra meal that Fura cannot provide and they will not possibly will have gotten that meal back at home. So together we are celebrating so much that we've achieved by staying true to the gospel and with our faith and hope and love let's continue doing this. I count on you all to stand with us on the next 10 years as we continue to transit and scale our program up by having our graduates who are now soon to graduate from college and university take charge and lead in the next phase of opening up satellites, of spreading the love, of starting new schools, opening up new opportunities for health centers, setting up new enterprises that will create employment. So I count on you all for the love that you've displayed for the past 10 years to walk this talk with us, be with us in the next phase as we spread and share the gospel of Jesus Christ in Uruma and its neighborhood. So thank you all. Thank you so much for this great opportunity. God bless. Thank you, David. Uh, so for $300, he couldn't finish college. And yet, God took that and empowered him and inspired him to lead transformation in a slum, which is impacting over 5,000 people every single day. It's, it's an amazing story, David. And you are an amazing man. Uh, let me wrap this up and finish off in about 10 minutes' time, guys, okay? And then we're, we're, go, we're going to pray for David. Uh, John Ecker will lead us in that there. And a chance for, you, you, for anybody who wants to uh, support and encourage David. We've been doing a series about this kingdom of God and seek first the kingdom of God. Uh, if you have, have a Bible, open it quickly to Luke's Gospel, chapter 14. And I'm going to run you through this uh, just so that, you know, over this next week you can pause and think about this here. But uh, uh, Jesus has been invited in Luke's Gospel, chapter 14, to a feast. And it's the feast not just with any old man. It's the feast with a rich Pharisee, a prominent religious leader. And if you want to read this story, Luke's Gospel, chapter 14, it's called The Parable of the Great Banquet. This will understand why we're going to go there when you hear uh, my, my next few comments. The story is not just about Jesus going to a feast of a prominent religious leader. In the scriptures, the kingdom of God is most often described as a banquet, as a feast. 
And so in this story, the scriptures are revealing the nature and the texture of the kingdom of God. It's a feast. And when you think of a feast or you think of a banquet, the question that comes to your mind is, well, who's invited? Who's on the guest list? Am I on the guest list? And this was a big problem for the Pharisees, the religious leaders, because they had their guest list of who got in and who didn't get in. Now, here's the fun part about the story. Come to verse 15 of Luke's gospel, chapter 14. This is one of the greatest stories that Jesus ever told. One of the people who were sitting with Jesus at this meal says these words, chapter 14, verse 15, blessed is everyone who will feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus turns to him and says, well, let's talk about that a little. And you have this story that Jesus talks. And the story is about how invites had been sent out to people like an, like an RSVP to come to this feast, this banquet. And the RSVPs were in, and now it was time for the, for the banquet to happen. And they didn't have clocks in those days. So just before the feast would happen, somebody from the household would go to the people who had RSVP'd and saying, hey, the banquet's this coming Friday. And as he went to get the people to remind them, they all began to give excuses why they couldn't come. One by one, they start to bail out. And it's all bogus excuses. Like, I've just bought some five yoke of oxen. I've got to go and examine them. Or I've just got married. I can't come. And what is going on in this story? The question you might ask is, well, is Jesus just talking about commitment? No. Here were the honored guests. And the honored guests would have had the honored place at the banquet. And if they didn't come to the banquet, the host would be humiliated. And these honored guests were making a deliberate attempt to snub and humiliate the host. They kept coming up with these ludicrous excuses why they now couldn't come. And if they couldn't come, the banquet wouldn't happen. But an extraordinary thing happens, says Jesus. Everybody imagines that the feast is now over. But the master of this feast says, no way is it not going to happen. This feast is going to happen. And if it doesn't happen with the honored guests that I've invited, it will happen with the outsiders, the people in society that normally aren't invited, the poor, the forgotten, the invisible, our friends from Haruma. So watch what happens. Verse 21, the master tells his servant to go out quickly and invite others to this banquet. And in other words, you have to invite them and what you're doing is to trump everything else, leave everything you've done and get out there and invite people. And verse 22, still there is room. Now I'm running through this, but you want to take a marker in your pen and you want to highlight Luke's gospel chapter 14, verse 22. Still there is room. That is an extraordinarily brilliant phrase. Because it's why you and I are at the table. It's why you and I are part of the kingdom of God. He came unto his own, but his own didn't receive him. And you and I were invited in. We are the fellowship of dweebs. <laughs> now, if a rich master 
invites an ordinary person, the polite thing to do would be to decline it. You're not of the right social status to go to the party. But the servant was told, don't take no for an answer. Verse 23, so that my house might be full. This is the heart of God. People snub him, but he doesn't take the half. His heart is so desiring of people to come and sit at his table, enter into his kingdom, come and gain heaven, belong with God. Stay with me if you've tuned out, because we're just about to finish. Here's the incredible truth. One day, you took your seat at the kingdom of God. You and I took our seats because somebody cared enough to invite us. Somebody cared enough to tell us, God's inviting you to his kingdom, and you come. And it might have been your mom or a dad, or it might have been a friend or a youth pastor. It might have been from the pulpit stadium here, and somebody preaching. But someone cared enough to say, you're on God's guest list. You're invited into his kingdom. And just in case you missed this, there's still room. There's still room in case you've, to this point, not said yes. Maybe this morning you didn't know that. Maybe this morning you're not clicking that you're on God's guest list. You think your friend is who brought you here because they've got their act together, but you haven't got your act together. And you think, well, God's not wanting me. God is wanting you. He's extending his arms and saying, you come. And you eat at my feast. And you be a part of my banquet. And you come into my kingdom. He's inviting you to come and to enjoy friendship with him. Just open your heart and step in. But let me finish. And as Jesus often does in a parable, here comes the sting in the tail. Wear your crash helmet. Jesus is very clear who gets to sit at his table. It's Lazarus. It's the only person he ever named. It's the poor. There's more verses in the Bible about helping and inviting the poor than about verses in the Bible that say, I get to heaven or you get to heaven. So we finish by asking two questions today. Two questions for this church. Two questions for you as part of this church. These are the million dollar questions. And you can make that check out for a million dollars if you wanted to. (laughs) Question number one. Are you ready? Is there room at your table for the poor? Do you know any Lazaruses? Man, this is real, real. If I'm going to follow this Jesus, I better like the people that Jesus liked. I better be about the people that Jesus was about. Is there room at your table for a Lazarus? Do you know any? Question number two. Who are you bringing to the table? Who are you going 
further than you've ever gone before to reach with Christ, to reach for Christ, and to invite to Christ. That's how the parable ends. That's the message of Luke's gospel, chapter 14. It's not just a story. There's a sting in the tail to each of us. What are our lives about? Are we just about praying a prayer to get to heaven? Or are we going to be about what Jesus was about? And what Jesus was about was inviting those who don't think they're invited to come to his table and to know his forgiveness and his grace and his mercy. And particularly the poor who in our world are forgotten and invisible. Thank you, David Oginga, for being with us this morning. You have... You have impacted so many lives, not only in Horuma, but also here in California. People who will never be the same because we've looked at your life and what you've done to serve Christ. And it makes us know what we need to be about as those who claim to follow this same Christ. So I'm going to invite you back up to the platform here. And John Ecker, uh, our worship pastor, is going to lead in prayer and some final comments. Thank you there. Wasn't it wonderful to have David here with us today? Before we we close, I I just wanted to kind of share something with you. David's story is a testimony in that he could have easily kept his eyes on the world and moved forward and not invested in what God laid on his heart. But he followed God and he went, I'm going to invest into the children. And so I would implore you today, there's an opportunity at the end of service. If you, if you want to do what he asked us to do, we've had a partnership for 10 years. Are we going to partner with, with them for 10 more years? Are we going to partner with them today? And let me be clear, you don't have to. It's okay. But I would challenge you to pray about it. Because for me, it's a challenge. What am I investing my money into? My Costco membership? Starbucks, those things that I have routine every day in my life. So I have to check myself and go, do I really need to have a grande latte every day for five bucks and invest in Starbucks? Probably not. But it's not about John asking you. It's not about Gilbert asking you. It's not about when I grow up asking you. It's not about David asking you. What is God asking you? James 1 says this, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father, means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. That's the Word of God. So as we close today, just pray about it. Maybe there's not a decision to be made today, but if your heart is pulled going, you know what? I'm just going to drop something in there. I'm going to put a check in there. Maybe throughout the week, you want to buy a ticket to the uh, the fundraiser and and see David again. Maybe you want to send something in. But whatever that is, let God speak to you. And don't let the world corrupt you. Don't let the enemy say no. Because this partnership has changed lives. And that is part of what we get to be a part of because God has spoken to us and what a privilege it is to be able to invest in God's kingdom. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for being a God who sees each and every person you created. 
who sees every child that you created and through it all provides for them. Lord, we thank you for this man, David, that you spoke to his heart and you lighted his path, Lord, back to a dark place so that he could be used by you to invest in the lives of orphans and widows and families and those who are distressed. And their lives are forever changed because of what you are doing, Lord. And we thank you for calling us into partnership with them, Lord, that you have used us in a unique way while we are thousands of miles away. You have challenged us to pray, to seek, to give. And so as we do that, Lord, we want to honor you. And we pray that you would continue to speak to our hearts. We pray that you would continue to sustain David and his workers in the mission field that he is wanting so much to be used in, Lord, and that you would provide for those children and those families, and you would be a light to them, Lord, and we would see more and more lives change, Lord, and as those children grow up, they would want to do your kingdom work, and they would want to change lives, Lord, and ultimately, a flame would burn bright in that community to be able to allow people to know the God of the universe, your precious Son, Jesus Christ, Lord, because that is the ultimate investment in this lifetime to be able to be used to change lives for your glory. So again, we thank you for this time. We pray you will continue to be with David, guard, protect him, guide him, and deliver him safely back to where he is going to be doing your work and continue to guide us on how we can be diligent to partner with him and the work he's doing, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.